On the show this week, Canada is set to host trade ministers from 12 countries this Wednesday, but the U.S. has not been invited. How will this meeting on reforming the WTO and Canada's push to seek trade opportunities with China affect our trade relations south of the border? Then a Saudi journalist's death in Turkey as 13 million Yemenis face starvation. Both appear to lead to the Saudi regime. As the outrage grows, why is the West still doing business with the kingdom? And nearly six years ago, cannabis was legalized in Colorado. We'll talk to that state's former marijuana enforcement officer about unexpected surprises after legalization. I'm Mercedes Stevenson, and this is the West Block Podcast. Later this week, 13 trade ministers from around the world will meet in Ottawa to discuss reforming the World Trade Organization and modernizing trade rules for the 21st century. But one nation who will not be represented at the meeting is the United States. This comes after a new trilateral deal between Canada, Mexico and the U.S. was reached last month, a deal that includes a China trade clause. Joining me now from Parliament Hill to discuss this meeting and future trade discussions is the Minister for International Trade Diversification, Jim Carr. Minister Carr, you're hosting a big international trade meeting here in Canada in this coming re week, but you haven't invited the United States of America. Why not? We've invited 12 countries who are like-minded, middle powers who represent uh, every continent. And we thought that we would start achieving consensus with like-minded countries, and we're doing that. They think that uh, this is a reasonable way to start a consensus-building process. So we've um, sent some ideas around to stimulate conversation. Uh, we're very happy with the response. Uh, many ministers are coming from around the world. And we all know that the WTO needs reform. Canada is a convening power. When we invite people to come, usually they say yes. We've invited, I think, a very good sample of world opinion, and our objective is to begin to create a momentum for reform. But if our biggest trade partner isn't there or invited, and you're saying this is like-minded countries, does that maybe mm -hmm. create an irritant with the United States? No, I mean, I don't have any evidence that the United States is uh, irritated by what we're doing. As a matter of fact, we have evidence that they're supportive of what we're doing. And when the consensus begins to build out after this first step, uh, then other nations, of course, will be invited to join. To get consensus among 164 nations is obviously a major task. But where do you start? Uh, you start by inviting people to a meeting in a place where they feel comfortable, to talk to a government that has shown its commitment to a rules-based order since the Second World War. We have benefited from it, but it needs reforms. Minister Carr, I want to ask you about an upcoming trip you and the finance minister have to China. Are you going mm -hmm. there to negotiate a free trade deal? No, we're not going there to negotiate a free trade deal. We're going there to co-chair a conversation, a dialogue, which we do every year. And there's lots to talk about. Uh, we're very excited about an announcement that was made just two weeks ago that Shell's going to invest $40 billion in Canada to move LNG from northern BC and then to Asia to displace coal cleaner Canadian resources displacing Asian coal. That's a subject that is not only of interest to Canada and all of the jobs it's going to create for our people, but also markets and customers who think that that resource is in their interests. And by the way, we think it's in the planet's interest too. What are you going to say to the Chinese about that section in USMCA that says Canada can't sign a trade deal with them now without consulting the United States first? 
doesn't say that we can't sign a trade deal with them. It says that if we enter into formal free trade negotiations, we have to inform our partners. And by the way, if the United States or Mexico wants to enter into similar discussions with so-called non-market economies, they have to tell us. And it's very hard to predict from one year to the next what the interests of any of these nations might be. Meanwhile, we are diversifying our trading relationships around the world uh, with South America, with Asia, uh, with the uh, countries of uh, Europe, where we celebrated just a few weeks ago the year anniversary of CETA that's already proving to be in the interests of Canada. So uh, we have sovereignty to negotiate agreements, to talk about sectoral agreements with all of our partners. China is the second largest economy in the world. It's growing and we'll continue to have conversations with them. I have to ask. Do you talk to them about the fentanyl that they're dumping into the Canadian market or the allegations they've been involved in money laundering in BC casinos? Because you're going there to talk to them about a financial relationship. Is a country that is doing that and has the kind of human rights history and ongoing human rights problems that China does the kind of country the Liberal government wants to sign a trade agreement with? We talk about human rights wherever we go around the world. Canadian values are at the very front of these conversations. Uh, we say so privately, sometimes publicly, especially when it's got to do with creating wealth and creating jobs, which is what trade agreements should be all about. Now, Stephen Harper, former Prime Minister, just wrote a book saying that trade agreements with China don't do that, that they undermine jobs in North America, that they drive down wages. Is that a concern you share? Well, you'll have to ask former Prime Minister Harper about why he comes to the conclusions that he does. The government of Canada believes that having serious conversations with our trading partners to create wealth and jobs is good for us. So why wouldn't we do it? But there's been no evidence so far, Minister Carr, that the Chinese have reformed anything in the wake of previous trade agreements. Uh, the Chinese have an interest in accessing uh, Canadian resources. We have an interest in uh, talking to the Chinese about our technologies, including our renewable resource technologies, including advanced manufacturing. We have an awful lot of brain power in this country that is of interest to the rest of the world, including China. That's the nature of these discussions, and it's a good thing for not only China and for Canada, but for all nations who believe that we can create wealth in a sustainable and responsible way. We need the rules-based order. So to talk about both of the subjects of uh, this interview, that's why we reformed the WTO. That's why we're continuing having this co very important conversation with our trading partners. Are you concerned at all that having this conversation with China could inflame the relationship with Donald Trump? He is putting tariffs against China. There's a trade war that's developing between those two countries. You've just signed USMCA. Uh, are you at all concerned about the message that sends the Americans? Well, uh, we act in Canada's interests. We've just agreed to a very important trading relationship with Mexico and the United States. Uh, I have no idea how other countries may respond to the conversations we have with countries around the world. Uh, they're free to express opinions, but Canada is a sovereign nation, and it's our right as a sovereign nation to enter into these discussions when we think it's in the interest of our people, and in this case, we certainly do. Minister Carr, thank you so much for your time today. It's always a pleasure. 
the U.S. announced last week it would give Saudi Arabia some time to investigate the death of Saudi journalist Jamal Khashoggi, who was killed inside the Saudi consulate in Turkey earlier this month. A tepid international response to his murder has many human rights groups challenging the West over its business and defense ties with the kingdom. In August, our own ambassador was kicked out of that country after the Canadian embassy sent a tweet in Arabic calling for the immediate release of jailed civil rights activists. And since then, officials have been trying to repair the damage. So when it comes to Saudi Arabia, is business more important than human rights? If you look at Saudi Arabia, they're an ally and they're a tremendous purchaser of not only military equipment, but other things. When I went there, they committed to purchase $450 billion worth of things and $110 billion worth of military. Those are the biggest orders in the history of this country. Joining me now from Toronto is our former ambassador to Saudi Arabia, Dennis Horak. Uh, Mr. Horak, why do you think Western countries have been so reserved and tepid in their response to what are allegations of a horrific crime? The crime, as you said, it is horrific, it's outrageous. Uh, but there's not a lot of good options available to, to countries in, in how to respond to this. Um, it's very, very difficult to, uh, to isolate a country like Saudi Arabia. And statements of condemnation uh, may make us feel better in terms of being able to stand up and say, right, you know, you can't do this. But I'm not sure that's the most effective way. I think the way the governments, U.S. and others, have been dealing with this, Canada, is, is talking to the Saudis, getting the message directly to the leadership that, look, this is, this is not on, this is, this is not acceptable, is the best way to be more effective, uh, is the what? best way to try and curb Saudi behavior. Would it be more effective if there was economic consequences, for example, if Canada were to cancel the $15 billion lab deal or if sanctions were to be put in place against Saudi Arabia? Sanctions, sanctioning Saudi Arabia is very difficult. They are such an important part of the oil, oil market that uh, they, people will continue to do business with Saudi Arabia because they have to. Certainly there are other sanctions that could be put on, and you mentioned the lab deal, for example. I'm not sure what impact that would have apart from losing uh, Canadian jobs and damaging Canada's reputation as a reliable supplier uh, for a gesture that's really going to have no impact on, on Saudi behavior. Where, we, where there are possibilities, and we've seen this happening, uh, the, there's a, a large investment conference uh, going on in Saudi Arabia, I believe, next week. A number of com companies have pulled out of that. Uh, the U.S. Uh, Treasury Secretary has just pulled out of that. Those are important messages in an area that Saudi really cares about. They're looking to try and enhance uh, foreign investment. It's a key plank of their reform efforts. And, and the message that these companies and the U.S. And, and other countries who are likely also not going is that, look, this is not the kind of behavior we want in a country that we want to invest in. And, and then that will hit home more than, than uh, statements of condemnation. Um, uh, so talking to the Saudis, talking to the leadership, sending that message directly to them so that they, that they don't feel, feel required to respond themselves and, and get their backs up. It has a better chance of being effective, even if it's not as emotionally satisfying as, as other I measures might be. I think it's, it's a fascinating conversation to have with you because, of course, you were rather unceremoniously kicked out of the country in behavior that's often reserved for when people are found to be spies because the Saudis were upset with a tweet that was sent out by Global Affairs Canada calling for the release of human rights activists. What about that tweet set them off? There were, there were a couple of things uh, going on with that. First of all, the fact that it was translated into Arabic, I think, uh, upset them. As, I, as Minister Al-Jaber said, uh, they believed that that was targeting their population. 
uh, with, with, with that criticism. So I think that was part of it. It's also reflective and, and in some ways is similar to this whole, although obviously on an extremely uh, much less important and much less severe plane, but it's similar to the kinds of attitudes that led to this, this, this horrible event in, in Turkey. This, this sense that, that we, that this hypersensitivity to any sort of criticism and that it, it will be dealt with severely and the kind of message that they were trying to send us, I'm sorry, through us to other countries is look, this is the price of criticizing Saudi Arabia publicly. This is the, Christ, the price of, of, of embarrassing us. And if, which I assume is correct, if the Saudis did kill uh, Jamal Khashoggi, the message to, to Saudis both inside the country and outside is look, uh, political criticism is not on. This, there's a price to be paid for that. We, have se we had seen the, over the course of the past uh, several months in Saudi Arabia uh, a shrinking of political space. Uh, we had the arrests of the women's rights activists, for example, in, in, in the springtime. And, and the sense, and, and previously there were other arrests, and it is this shrinking political space, and we've now seen the darkest side of that in Turkey. Do you think that they have become emboldened? Because it's exactly what you're saying. Countries feel there's not really much they can do. They have to do business with the Saudis. They need their oil. They, in many cases, need their defense ties when we're talking about things like terrorism or regional stability. What effect has that had on their behavior? I, I suppose they have been emboldened somewhat. But the Saudis have always uh, felt an ability to act as and, as and when they saw fit, uh, act as they wished. Um, what's different this time around is they, that they've taken this to a much darker side uh, than, than they have previously. You're absolutely right there. They're, they are a valuable, valuable partner. They're a very important player in the region. Um, and so we need to maintain, the West needs to maintain that relationship with them. And if, that, if the Saudis feel because of that, that that gives them a, a wider plane to operate, and, uh, then, then that's true. But on the other hand, as I said, they are looking at this reform program uh, to, to uh, move their country forward, this economic diversification and social change. And it's, an import, it's important for them, it's important for the Crown Prince, it's important for their future stability. So, Do you think that we've, we've it, been maybe somewhat duped by the Crown Prince? Look, so he's letting women drive, you can go to movies, but on the other hand, there's this massive human rights crackdown. Yeah, but because there's two different, there's, there's, it, it's, it's two different points, really. Because the reform program is about economic diversification, it's about social change, it's not about political freedom. It never was. Uh, that's never been a part of the program. So on the one hand, uh, the reforms that they're putting in are legitimate and they're important. For example, one of the, one of the key elements of this, and something that will have an imprint on Saudi Arabia going forward in a way that we think is very positive, uh, is the changing of the education system, K through 12. And okay. developing a more um, uh, more effective education system to make Saudis uh, better workers, more more qualified to take on jobs when they graduate. We and have to, to wrap it up there, Mr. Horak. I'm sorry, Ed, I would love to keep talking to you about this, but we're out no of problem. time. But uh, we hope to have you on the program again soon. Thanks so much. Okay, thank you. A new study released by the U.S. National Transportation Safety Board found that states that have legalized pot are seeing increases in car crashes. Nearly six years ago, Colorado became the first state to legalize cannabis, and Louis Kosky was the state's marijuana enforcement director. Now that cannabis is legal here, what are some of the lessons learned from the Colorado experience?
Joining me now from Sacramento, California, is Mr. Koski himself, who advises governments around the world on implementing cannabis policy. Uh, Mr. Koski, were you surprised at all by this study that showed the increase in car accidents after cannabis legalization? Well, I'm not surprised at all to, to hear that uh, the data is suggesting that uh, there might be more car crashes. Um, uh, what we don't know is exactly what's causing that. Uh, it's, it's, not, uh, it's not probably prudent to just assume right off the bat just because a state's legalized cannabis uh, and there's an increase in car accidents that it's because of cannabis. What did you see in Colorado in terms of impaired driving after legalization? Was there a significant spike initially? So the best data that we have on that uh, is data that's referred to as FARS data, and it's basically the fatal accident reporting data that we get. Every time uh, a, car, a car accident occurs and someone is um, killed in those car accidents, they're tested, for also, uh, they're tested for a number of different things, not the least of which is for the presence of cannabis. And so the most recent data in Colorado would suggest that uh, there's an increase uh, in cannabis uh, after those tests. What we don't know for sure, though, is, is, is whether or not those people that tested positive for cannabis were impaired, because that test simply doesn't exist. Uh, and we don't know, uh, uh, therefore, whether or not it was the causation for those particular crashes. Certainly an area that we're concerned about, and it's certainly an area that government needs to be really sensitive to uh, and, and continue to work through public education's campaigns, improving uh, regulations and those types of things to make sure that, uh, um, that those problems, if they exist, are being addressed. How do law enforcement officers deal with that? Because they have a breathalyzer for alcohol. We have a, a machine that tests in Canada called the Drygar 5000, but it's producing false positives below 4 degrees Celsius, which it is in a lot of Canada for a lot of the year. So how do police officers know if somebody is impaired? Well, so I'm a law enforcement officer by trade, and, and, and so I'm familiar with uh, this. You know, long before there was legalization, uh, there, were st uh, there were still cases that, that law enforcement brought forward uh, with respect to impaired driving and the use of cannabis or multi-drug use. And, and, there's a, and, and, and certainly officers are trained on how to spot impairment, and, and most impairment cases um, uh, involve, first and foremost, bad driving, so running a red light, speeding, swerving, those types of things which cause the, the stop in the first place. And then officers are trained to, to, to be able to assess people who are driving for impairment uh, and different types of impairment. And so so there's, they're still able to bring those types of cases forward and put those together and keep uh, the roads safer, um, even though there's not a test for impairment. What were the changes that you saw from a law enforcement perspective in the days and weeks and months after cannabis was initially legalized? Well, I, I think, you know, we're, and we're seeing this play out across the country right now here in the U.S. and, and, and in Canada. Um, there, there's a lot of work and effort that goes into the, the process of legalizing marijuana uh, in any jurisdiction, and a lot of that work um, happens well in advance of the first day of legal sales, and then there's always a lot of work that has to be done afterwards as well. Um, some of the things that, that we were working on right after legalization was to continue to kind of complete the, the, the policy. So we had to work on uh, regulations that, that address some of the concerns that we had about concentrate production um, and edibles, all of which have uh, an impact on both public health and safety. Um, we also were working really hard to be able to implement uh, comprehensive uh, testing regimes for the product itself. So our focus was really on the regulated community 
how we can continue to uh, evolve those regulations and, and really drive public health and safety while still also recognizing that this is a new industry um, that uh, um, that uh, that doesn't necessarily need to be crushed under the weight of really restrictive regulations. How long did it take in Colorado before you started to see the legal industry actually starting to disrupt the black market? Well, we think that there were some impacts um, relatively quickly with respect to uh, the, um, the criminal market that was operating in Colorado. Um, uh, it, what we found, like initially, was that the regulated market, once it really starts to come online and on ramp into the, the framework, uh, and you start to see inventory coming into an inventory tracking system, and, and you see that they're complying with a, a number of the regulations, they tend to shine a really bright light on those participants who are not. Um, uh, coming forward and, and becoming part of the regulated industry. And so where, um, where there's this transition period where there's, there's you know, some gray area in terms of what's legal, what's not legal, once those regulated businesses really start coming online, it uh, becomes very apparent who is not uh, operating in compliance with the law, which allows then law enforcement and, and state regulators, and in your case, federal regulators, to really be able to identify who are the most risky actors and then dedicate resource, resources towards those that are most likely to be creating the, the biggest public health and safety threats. What advice would you give to Canada now? And I know this is what you do for a living. Uh, as we are in this post-legal era, what do we need to be thinking about up here? Well, I have to say that um, it's going to be fascinating to watch how things develop up in Canada. And I think to a large extent, um, you know, as I mentioned earlier, there's a lot of work that has to happen uh, before uh, statutes and regulations are fully enacted. Uh, and everything that we've seen so far up here, or up in, in Canada, would suggest that, that, the, that the country is really on the right track. You get a lot of support um, from uh, elected and federal officials uh, to make sure that you're getting this right. Uh, the country has done a really good job seeking the counsel of, of a, a, a lot of stakeholders, a very diverse group with uh, uh, differing opinions on how the regulations should uh, be formulated. Uh, and so it, in a lot of ways, the things that have made Canada successful up until this point is going to continue to make them successful as they start to endeavor into regulating other products like concentrates and edibles. Well, we have to wrap it up there, but Mr. Koski, thank you so much for your time and sharing your experience in Colorado with us. It was my pleasure to be here. Have a nice weekend. Thanks for checking out the West Block Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe and listen on your Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, or wherever you find your podcast. And join the conversation at the West Block Facebook and check out our Instagram page. And please tune in again.